0: Hi everybody, this is Gary Waite from Pegasus Battlefield Tours here in the UK and you're listening to your Papers, Please podcast. The show that brings you some of the lesser known history of World War II. big welcome back to episode 4 of Your Papers Please and our continuation of trooper Cecil Newton's story. At the end of part 2 we got to the end of August 1944. The closing of the Falaise Gap around the 21st of August was the end of the Battle of Normandy, which saw the battered remnants of the German army hightailing it back to the fatherland and the relative safety of home soil. By the 25th, Paris was in Allied hands. In this episode, the 4-7 Royal Dragoon Guards, along with 20-year-old Cecil in his Sherman tank, are moving through northern France on their way to help liberate Belgium and Holland. I'll let Cecil take over.
1: Well, as I said, that we were due to uh, go to bourg Leopold and Oostum en route we were to do reconnaissance of Lille to see if it was uh, defended all I remember is going into Lille after taking the wrong road and landing up in the main square at Lille And, and it was absolute bedlam Uh, we had a new tank commander and they really concentrated on him and uh, started taking all his bits and pieces of him in there for souvenirs and I remember they said they went round that there was a the Germans were coming, which they were in a part of Lille. And so the place cleared and there was in next to no time and the cobbles just emerged from their feet. And I remember a father and a small daughter, we had a German tin hat on the front of the tank. And she had taken the German tin hat as they were running away about the last they dropped the tin hat. Uh, I thought afterwards, I hope that if the Germans went and found her with that, she'd be in trouble. However, next day, we went south of Lille, just the one tank, to uh, have a look round there. And we went up a road to a farmhouse and we were parked on the road, looking towards the main road comes south of Lille and the um, two men arrived, two Frenchmen, at a distance and waving white flags to show they were friendly and they came and stood beside the tank and spoke to the troop leader that there were Germans in the farmhouse. up at the end of the track, the German troop. I didn't know what was happening, I was sitting in the tank. So I used, we had lots of bottles of booze empty in the tank, so I used one of those to relieve myself and corked it and there was a little hatch beside the the operator and I opened the hatch and pushed it out but instead of it falling on the ground it was taken by eager hands and you could see the two Frenchmen walking away admiring the label of the gift we had given them. I hope they enjoyed it. Then from there we were heading for Oostum and Borg Leopold When we we were having trouble with the electrics on the tank, and we were delayed while it was being fixed, and we were told to rejoin the the main thrust afterwards, and we went after it had been finished. They brought a starving German in. And uh, they started taunting him, the infantry, and he turned round and kicked one of them up in the pants. I don't know what happened to him or the people who the French resistance who got him. Then we went into Ouster on the way, and as we were going into Uster. A armour-piercing shot came from a, which I understood was from a self-propelled gun, missed us by uh, an inch. And the young second lieutenant, who was completely bomb-happy, shouted, reverse, reverse, to the drive, and tried to get out of the tank, but Ken, the gunner, grabbed him by the legs and pulled him back in and the tank went back into a copse and it stayed there, it couldn't go any further, so the troop leader, who was a very efficient person, got out of his tank and walked over to see what the problem was and told him to get out of it. And as we went past the troop sergeant's tank, the driver had got out and was waving us on to get out of ourselves. And when we I spoke to him post-war, what had happened was that the troop sergeant with his pistol saw some German paratroops in front, too got out to take them in, which was very brave brave of him. But there was a whole, about six or more, hiding around the corner. And uh, and he had no chance with them, and they captured him. And while this was happening, another para, from German, climbed up the back of the tank, shot the, Moffat, Stan Moffat, who was watching proceedings with his head out of the turret and then threw a grenade into the tank and the driver who was waving us on told me that he could hear from where he was lying, he was slightly wounded by the tank, he could hear John Hill screaming in agony for somebody to come and save him and he was only 19 and Stan Moffat uh, was a Liverpool lad and uh, he was a regular soldier. It just shows you how the Germans operated. They set that trap. And they thought very carefully of what they should do uh, and planned it. And that was what I came across the whole time during the campaign, was that the, they thought very carefully of how they would defend their particular patch. For instance, at Christo, which was just soon after D-Day, the uh, 2nd in command went into Christo to do a a recce in the morning and the crew member was telling me that there was no one there empty except that there was a, a woman pushing a pram down the high street So in the afternoon it was arranged that there was about an attack at 4.30 down the track 102 to 103 which was about was very near to south about half a mile or less uh, to Cristo and with the Green Howard, six Green Howard, and B Squadron with the tanks remaining, nine tanks remaining. They started at 4.30, crossed the road that ran north to south. At the end of the road was an 88 millimetre gun shooting down the road. Lined up, patiently waiting, was a full deployment of 12th SS. And at the end of the the nearest of their trenches was a dug pit, which you can still see, where there was a Panther tank. And the regiment, the B squadron, walked straight in front of it disastrous effect to the to B squadron who lost the nine tanks virtually, one got out of it but had to tow another one out and the mayor was telling me later that there were two tanks in, that had been burnt out, two B squadron tanks, were in the field for two years afterwards. Well, I was just saying that they, the, the Germans were very, very clever in, uh, in their defensive pattern. Well, from... Well, we went uh, from Oostum up to Nijmegen, arriving at Nijmegen, to uh, get um, a a marvelous reception, and then from Nijmegen we uh, went to Arnhem. Uh, We went to Drill ourselves, B Squadron, which is to the west of Arnhem and attacked down the Bundle, the the protection wall of the river, but that was no good. We stayed there and uh, couldn't get through. They dropped the paras opposite to us, the Polish uh, Parachute Brigade. They were going to drop them south of Arnhem on the bridge but they altered the uh, directions and dropped them on top of a German unit that had been sent there to retrain and recuperate. Some of the Poles managed to get across. I spoke to one of them and he said we cut their throats like this and brought out a 12-inch long knife and flourished underneath my nose. I was terrified. Well, the bridge at Nijmegen was captured by the Americans, the, the defense of the other side. They crossed it in boats and then a captain met the Irish uh, Guards lead tank, which um, was uh, the troop leader was Carrington, who became Foreign Secretary. Uh, As you know, uh, Arnhem was a complete failure, not due to the Paris, of course, but uh, the hopeless planning to it. And uh, we got out of it lightly, two were killed at Elst, Uh, it could have been worse. But as we spent some time on the island, which was the place, the part of Arnhem, that had the two rivers north and south, and we decided to get back, try and get into Germany south of Arnhem. We went down to Brunswick, and uh, after spending a couple of days down there went into action to, to Tripstrath. Torrential rain, Sherman tanks with their narrow tracks. They nearly all got bogged down, we got bogged down. The driver, Cliff Ford, got out to see what could be done. I got out and we tried to get a tow. But in the meantime, Ken, who'd already gone bomb happy, was standing there watching the operations. Uh, He wouldn't get out himself, but he got shot in the neck. It took his left epaulet away, buttoned to his epaulet, and went straight through the side of his neck and out the other side. And there was me standing at the edge on the turret, dressing his wound and the thing. I said, how lucky I was that the sniper had got home for his lunch, otherwise I'd have had it. Then we went to a farm overlooking Tripshouth, and again, Cliff got a door out of the farm and we dug an enormous great trench. We all got into that and put the door over it, got the machine gun out, and we could hear the German tanks revving up and taking up position in Trip South. We went down first thing in the morning to try and relieve the Worcester regiment who were trapped at the end of the north end of Tripsworth. Went left, went left again, went right into the high street and bang. The commander of our tank, Corporal, said bail out. The operator had to duck under the gun to get out. And he had to be third to get out. The, the, the tank commander had to get out. He got tangled up in his uh, in his lead. Then Ken, uh, the, the, the gunner, whoever it was, got out. And then I was getting out, and uh, with my right leg up on the rim, turret ring, and then the tank exploded and my left leg was left to its fate. I stood on the top with my left leg waving about, wondering what to do when a German, presumably, uh, I didn't see very much, a German unit passed and the officer, because he, he was the officer who stopped me, he had a Router 765. If it had been one of the troops with a nine millimeter, it had blown at that close range, it had blown me apart. But the bullet entered the small of my back and went through my chest and lodged just by my collarbone. And luckily it was a small caliber bullet from a Wouter pistol. I flopped on the ground into the mud. Pouring with rain and uh, again Cliff Ford rushed out of the house to drag me in followed by Wolf and the Germans lobbed a grenade over the tank and uh, got them both in the legs and they lay by the doorway and I crawled past and one of the Buster Brown was in the house and he helped me onto the bed and then fixed me up with a morphine. And then um, that was early in the morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock. And then in the evening, a Bren gun carrier came with a stretcher and put me on the stretcher and uh, took me to a hospital. That was the end of my career in the army.
0: Well, what an ending to a truly remarkable story. I trust that many will agree that Cecil has a very distinctive style of expressing his narrative. Twenty-year-old trooper Cecil Newton survived D-Day and later went for a bicycle ride along the landing beach. He survived the many ferocious tank battles in the Normandy Bocage and the War of Attrition in Holland through the winter months in the island position supporting Polish, British and Canadian parachutists and then later the American 101st Airborne. He survived his tank being blown up and then being shot almost point-blank by a German officer with a pistol. Truly outstanding and put across in such a mesmerising fashion. I wish to thank Cecil from the bottom of my heart for his contribution here. You are a wonderful man, and I'm so glad you made it through. Thank you. And I also hope anyone who has listened to Cecil's story over these three episodes has enjoyed it too. Thanks for tuning in. Yes, thanks for listening to Your Papers, Please with me, Gary Waite. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Please don't forget to subscribe so that you can be informed of all future releases. You can find me under Pegasus Battlefield Tours on Facebook and Twitter, and the website www.pegasusbattlefieldtours.com Thanks everyone. Toodlepip!